Hey guys, it's Graham. What's cracking? Uh, I guess there was a new Matrix movie that came out this year. I can't say that I'm all that interested in it. I've been posting online about, you know, we've got these legacy media properties, not media properties, like pop culture properties. And some of them have way more films in the series than should be canonically recognized, let's say. For example, there are, what, six or seven Terminator movies at this point? But who really wants to acknowledge anything beyond Terminator and Judgment Day, right? Uh, you know, same thing with the Alien movies. They've done Covenant and Prometheus and all this stuff, but let's just do the first two with Sigourney. Not even the third one and not Alien Resurrection. They, they kind of lost what they were doing. Based on what I've heard of the new Matrix movie, it's no different. I don't think it's going to offer us anything new other than a nice big vine full of memba berries. And I can get those anywhere. You know, there are only four Star Wars movies, and I'll entertain arguments about the prequels. <laughs> but the reason I'm mentioning the Matrix is the concept of pilling. Red pilling, blue pilling. You know, back in the first movie when... Morpheus offered a red pill or a blue pill to Neo, the choice was, if you take this one, I'm going to show you the world as it really is, the red pill. If you take the blue pill, then you get to continue the delusion of what you think the world is like. And so, you know, whether it's culturally or politically or whatever, that's what those two terms mean. Uh, it's been expanded. There are, you know, other colors of pills that they add. Um, I want to talk about white pilling versus black pilling. The simplest explanation is uh, if somebody's black pilled, then they just have a nihilistic view of everything. Everything is doom and gloom. We're all going to die. Everything sucks. There's nothing we can do about it. Whereas you know, the white pill is hope. You know, oh, I got white pilled on this thing. I'm optimistic. You know, it's it's optimism versus pessimism. Now I consider myself a pretty optimistic guy, a hopeful guy. I like to have a positive view of things and I don't like to wallow in the doom and gloom of it. There's a reason why people cling to the black pill and more importantly why people try to sell you the black pill. Media, there goes my brake light again, media, whether it's right wing or left wing, likes to sell you the black people with the black people. <laughs> No, they can't sell black people. That's been illegal for 150 years. Bad. They like to sell you the black pill because if you're scared, then you're more easily managed. You can be coerced into doing what they want you to do. Black pills don't even technically have to be incorrect for them to be used wrong. You know, the, what's an example of a left-wing black pill? Uh, the idea that the evil big bad white supremacy monster is working around every single corner and it's going to kill you. Uh, whereas a, a right-wing black pill would be, you know, the, the satanic communists are lurking around every single corner and want to kill you. You know, the, one of them will cry about like, oh, the, the corporatists are taking over everything. And the other one will say, well, the socialists are taking over everything. And it's like, well, who cares what skin they wear if they're just taking over everything and we're, we're getting destroyed. But I'm getting out into the weeds here. This is primarily a culture podcast. We talk about books and movies and TV shows and stuff. And so the uh, more relevant point becomes black pills in fiction. And I want to talk about 
two books specifically on this front because uh, much like with media, it comes from both directions. You've got books that uh, are, are popular and successful and have big audiences and they sell the black pill. On the left side of things, you've got the terrible doom and gloom author, Margaret Atwood, who I've read two of her books now and they just suck. Granted, she's more successful than I am. That's not the point. The books suck. One of them was Oryx and Crake, where child pornography featured in the story, which you're never... Oh, good hell, no. Uh, but the other one was The Handmaid's Tale, which was made into a TV show on Hulu, and it just featured a bunch of female characters with a massive, massive persecution complex, not unlike the author who wrote the story. Who would have you believe that the big bad evil questions are looking around every corner and may not want to kill you, but they want to subjugate and commoditize you and make you dress in these weird costumes and you just become property and oh by gosh by golly, if the right-wingers get their way, that's exactly how it's going to be and, and we'll never be able to fight back against it. All women will be property and, and uh, you'll just basically be used for house chores and breeding. Now, on the right-wing side of things, I'm going to mention a novel that isn't as widely read, perhaps, but is still pretty successful because it's, it's an independent sci-fi novel. And uh, I'm going to mention this author by name, uh, Travis Corcoran. I have a professional affiliation with him. Uh, on last week's episode where I mentioned the Mammon Anthology, uh, he's going to be in that one. Uh, and in fact, just yesterday, he and I were coordinating on similar elements in our stories and uh, seeing what what breadcrumbs we can drop, as it were, in order to uh, to make it all cohesive as part of a larger narrative. So um, he's one of those guys that I, I know online. I wouldn't say like, oh yeah, he's my friend Travis. Like I've, I've, I've read some of his stuff and now I get to work with him, which is pretty cool. I think he's very intelligent and he knows a lot of science, a lot of the hard science stuff that he puts into his books, which makes them an interesting read. But after reading the first in a, in a trilogy that he's got called uh, The Powers of the Earth. Actually, I'm not sure what the trilogy is called. The first one is called The Powers of the Earth. And it's, uh, it's a right-wing black pill fiction, you know, for, for my money. When I read it, by the time I got to the end of it, I was just like, man, I, you know, I feel sick to my stomach reading stuff like this. Because to a degree, you can see stuff going on in... in the current political machine let's say that it's dialed up to like an eight or a nine and if you were to maybe click that up to an 11 that's how it would be in in the book that travis wrote the basic premise is that well okay so if you've read atlas shrugged it's like atlas shrugged only with spaceships instead of a train you know uh, the government has gotten so damn big there's there's only one party but it's divided into sub parties so instead of like Democrats and Republicans is like everything is Democrat, but then you have like Democrat A and Democrat B. It's like the the Republicans are never going to win another election, and so now you've got which flavor of collectivism do we want playing out in real time? Um, you know they they consider assets to be productive uh, instead of people being productive, and if somebody takes assets and does something productive with them, oh well, you stole those productive assets from the public coffers and you know, you, you've stolen from your fellow man and we need to collectivize this thing that you have. Um, 
frick, dude. Like, it's it's not like he's wrong in the argument that he makes, but in, in what he presented in that story, it was just like, man, like, every every good guy is really smart. He's just outnumbered and takes it on the chin from every bad guy who's really dumb. But the bad guys outnumber him, and they have more power. And so the question becomes, like, you know, how do the smart minority, the moral minority, uh, fight back against a, an immoral, overpowering majority? These are... These are two stories that are on the opposite ends of the political spectrum, but they are very similar in in what they sell. They are selling the black pill. Um, I will say, in Travis's defense, that it's possible things get better by the end of that trilogy or in the sequel or whatever. I, I just read the first one a couple of years ago, and, and like I said, I was like, oh, yeah, I, d- I don't want to keep feeding this stuff to my brain. I don't like the way that I feel when I read things like that. You know, it's not that, oh, you know, you're you're being presented with something that scares you and you want to run away from it. It's like, no, we can get plenty of stuff that scares us, quote, unquote, in real life. I don't want to go feeding it to myself with the fiction that I read. And that brings me to a larger point about pilling and the stories that we tell ourselves. Both of these... Black pill books represent values or ideas that the author wants to lay forth, and then the author brings up an axe that they have to grind with the way that they view the world. And I think more in, in Travis's case, you, you, know, you can make a case for him bringing real-world elements into his story versus Margaret Atwood having this crazy belief that churches everywhere have all the power in the world and they're just out there subjugating and beating the crap out of people which speaking as a guy who regularly goes to church so it's definitely not the case but I digress what you constantly feed yourself shapes the picture that you want to have of the world and that doesn't mean that you've got to stick your head in the sand and not recognize what's going on in the world It doesn't mean that you've got to shy away from current events and from larger power structures that have a disproportionate influence on your life. But at the same time, you you don't have to just sit there and constantly feed yourself doom and gloom and convince yourself that it's the cause of the people who have values that are opposite your own. I mean, this is how you end up with people, oh my gosh, people like Alyssa Milano, who showed up to a Supreme Court Justice Confirmation hearing, cosplaying as one of these handsmaid tail chicks, trying to make her career relevant ten years after it died, just because she was the third hottest chick on Charmed and nobody remembers who she was. But she's got this doomer black pill left-wing view of the world, and that's all that she's got to cling to. And when something happens that minorly contradicts uh, you know, her, her values, she's got to get out there in, in full force because that's what she's fed herself. You know, I'm sure you can think of something on the right wing that's the exact same way. You know, there's a reason why right wing talk shows are all commercials for doomer prepper supplies. You know, hey, get this bunker food, get this apocalypse generator, you know, and they got... 70, 80-year-old women buying this stuff because they're convinced that the end is right around the corner, and that's what Glenn Beck tells them to buy. It's There's a better way. 
The final point I'll make on this is uh, several years ago, there was, this is back when I was probably more into um, the NFL side of social media before everything in the NFL went crazy. The Colts had a linebacker named Daniel Adongo, who was one of the top rugby players uh, out of Kenya. They, they brought him over to the U.S. on like a half million a year contract or something. You know, nothing to blow their noses at, but this was the previous GM trying to find diamonds in the rough and be cute about it. But I liked Daniel Adongo. I liked his story. Dude was like six foot five or something, built like a Marvel superhero. And he was trying to come over from rugby and learn the ins and outs of the NFL, learn how to be a pass rusher and a tackler and stuff. They were, they were trying to see if they could get a good player for cheap. And I remember listening to some interviews with him where he was talking about you know, how difficult it was to change skill sets. You know, he was at the top of his game here. He wanted to come be the, at the top of his game there. And he had to learn you know, the ins and outs of the position that he was playing. And his first season, he, he logged like one or two special teams tackles. He didn't do great, but in the off season, he improved a lot. And in one of these interviews he gave, he talked about how when you start from zero and you try to tackle something new, you know, you, you'll make big leaps and bounds at first because you're starting from zero. You got nowhere to, to go but up. But as you kind of get towards the top of your game, it gets a lot harder to make a small 0.6% increase, improvement in your game. And he highlighted specifically, you know, at that point, everything that you put into your body and in your mind starts to matter. The, the things that you think about, the music that you listen to, the things that you feed your, your brain and your soul matter, uh, you know, in addition to eating right, exercising, getting enough sleep and all that stuff. It's, it's not a concept that's foreign to me. I've heard it a lot growing up in, in uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We, we talk a lot about choosing good entertainment and, and things like that. But um, hearing him say it in that particular way has stuck with me more over the last several years. And it's helped me to kind of put that into words as, as a literacy advocate. You know, I got to think of why I read the things that I do and why I avoid the things that I do. And it's primarily got to do with, you know, how I want to reinforce my hopes for the future, how I want to reinforce my worldview. I still want to be open to improving the way that I, that I understand the world. You know, I, I want to embrace truth when it comes along, but what sum is there in being negative all the time and in having this fear-based view of everything assuming that your philosophical opposites are lurking around every single corner waiting to pounce on you and take every good and valuable and holy thing from your life you know you should definitely protect the things that are sacred to you as it were but Man, living, living in fear is just not the way. That's, that's not the way that you become the best version of yourself that you can be. And so that's why I generally avoid stuff like that. You know, even when it comes from uh, a perspective that I philosophically align with. So on that note, um, if you're curious about Travis Corcoran's book, The Powers of the Earth, uh, it's 
like I said, if, you, if you're not familiar with Atlas Shrugged, let me put it this way. Um, you know, collectivists have taken over the world governments. Um, inventors and, and innovation is stifled because it's, it's taxed, it's overregulated, and anytime anybody creates something, you know, commercially viable, it gets smashed by red tape by the government and stuff. In Atlas Shrugged, uh, you know, there was an inventor who wanted to build a railroad on this new and improved kind of metal and and uh, the government tried to come down on him because they figured, well, we can just take what you've got and it'll solve all of our national debt problems and our this, that, the other thing. He's like, yeah, no, it's not going to work that way. It turns out all of the inner innovators and inventors and creatives and industrialists, they all went in hiding into this place in the Rocky Mountains called Galt's Gulch. And they created their own little society and said, you know, when you guys are ready to get that government monkey off of our backs, we'll come back to society and, and participate there. In the meantime, we can take care of ourselves here. In Travis Corcoran's book, Empowers of the Earth, um, some people invent this anti-gravity technology and they turn uh, ocean freighters into spaceships by, you know, we, we sail them out and <laughs> drive them. We sail them out into the ocean, we hit this anti-grav drive, and then we, uh, you know, using physics where this is <laughs> some of the stuff where Travis puts the details in there and it just kind of goes over my head because I'm not an astrophysicist. No pun intended, over my head. See, spaceflight. They go to the moon and they create their own little pressurized cities on the moon and do their own inventing and stuff there. But, you know, the governments on the Earth that are ostensibly dumb and immoral compared to these people on the moon, but they have a whole bunch of military power, they say, okay, well, we'll send a military up to the moon and we'll just take all their stuff because they stole productive assets from the Earth. They you know, without acknowledging that, no, what's, what's productive was the uh, intellectual property of the people who went up there. They just didn't want to be economic and government slaves, which I, th I think there's enough reality in a concept like that to where you can, you can say, like, look, what, this is what's happening in this story, and this is how much of this is happening in real life, and we're not far away from that. I think it makes for a very interesting tale. It's just the way that I felt when I personally walked away from it, finishing at the end. I was like, oh man, that's not how I want to feel about things. But maybe you'll feel differently about it. So the book recommendation for that one is uh, Travis Corcoran's Powers of the Earth. Uh, Content-wise, there was some language, um, you know, some, some violence. It wasn't exceptionally gory or anything. I thought the science side of it was really cool though. So anyway, I'm long on this one. I uh, hope you guys have had a good week. Thanks again to everybody who subscribed to the YouTube channel. And uh, stay tuned for more videos there and more episodes here. Until then, stay rad, drive safe, see you out there.